like, where did your spine go? I mean, who knew of all people who were going to turn out to be an absolute jellyfish that John Cena would be at the front of that line? From the top Um, rope, the jellyfish, John Cena. Yeah. Welcome to Consumer Choice Radio. We're broadcasting to you internationally on the Big Talker 106.7 FM in Wilmington, North Carolina, and on Saga 960 AM in the Peel region of Ontario, Canada. I'm one half of your host, Yael Ososki, broadcasting to you from the central Piedmont region of North Carolina. It's a lovely and bright day, and it's even more bright because I got here on the mic with me, my trusty colleague, co-host David Clement. Uh, who's up there outside of Toronto, basking in the sun. David, how goes it? Oh, it's good. It's good. I mean, the weather's nice. We can golf again. Um, it's uh, Things are looking up. I'm feeling a little better. Um, lots to talk about this week, so I think we should probably just get into it. I don't know where you want to start. If you want to start about the lab leak theory, or you want to talk alcohol policy or vaccines, uh, I'll, let you, uh, I'll let you be the quarterback here and, and make that call. Yeah, we've got plenty to come here on the program. Uh, We've got a great guest in block number two. Uh, So Dr. Kimberly Josephson will be back with us. Uh, She'll talk about uh, the corporate social responsibility movement and how it actually deceives consumers and might actually be harmful. Uh, That'll be really interesting. Hopefully we can work a lot more uh, with her. She's been doing a lot of great research and work. So that's coming up after the break. Um, in terms of now, David, uh, alcohol is on my mind, but so are the vaccines. I, I can feel my uh, my fever uh, start to kick in a bit. Got the uh, shot number two, so I think I've I've now joined you on the hashtag Pfizer gang, as you would say. Welcome. Yes, uh, <laughs> great to be here. Uh, so this was a, kind of an experiment. So for American listeners, uh, the first shot that I received was the AstraZeneca, uh, which is not approved in the U.S. Uh, but it is in Canada, and I uh, got that over in Europe and then was able to get the second dose of Pfizer, which, according to many studies, is perfectly fine to mix, to mix and match. Uh, it's actually now policy in France and Germany, and pretty much it's going to be the policy everywhere. I could foresee something happening like that in Canada as well and many other countries. But yeah, a uh, human experiment. Uh, I can feel my, my temperature rising. I haven't had any, any you know, not bad effects for now i think it's mostly just my sore arm uh, which i think is probably similar to what you had with that first dose david yeah yeah i didn't have any uh any fever or anything like that i just i mean the way i in which i described it to people because i was lucky that i I shopped around in terms of how early i could get the vaccine and and got it earlier like a good consumer yes yeah um got it earlier than than i got it basically as early as i possibly could given the timeline um, but I described it to people as it's no, it was no more intrusive than donating blood, um, or having blood taken for a medical test. Like it really wasn't, wasn't bad at all. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, if you're listening and you have not gotten your vaccine, no, uh, no side effects on my end, other than feeling pretty, pretty jazzed about it. Um, just hoping that I could get my second dose sooner rather than later because my timeline has not been moved up i'm still like the end of august which is wow. uh, tough tough because i mean 
now I'm beyond the two week mark. So in theory, under a normal schedule, I would be able to get it. Um, but I, I, I can't yet. So I'm hope, hopefully whether it's Doug Ford or Justin Trudeau, whoever makes that call, hopefully they get on it and they let me get my second dose soon enough. But what's interesting for you is that there are a lot of Canadians who are now in your uh, predicament, predominantly those who are like 50 to 65 uh, who got the AstraZeneca shot as their first shot, they're now actually going to be either fast-tracked for their second dose of AstraZeneca this week or, or um, they'll end up getting a mix and match, which um, has proven to be safe and effective, which is great. Um, I'm curious. I mean, I'm completely hypothesizing here, but I wonder if the combination of the two would maybe have some additional benefits because it's two different technologies um, I don't know if there's any evidence to that, but there, there is that okay. was a, I think it was the study in Spain that they did and actually found that you had much more antibodies when you had the Astra first and the Pfizer second compared to if you yeah. had Astra both times. So just so a, I think more of a robust antibody response, which is great. Yeah. So yeah, we, we talked a lot about the vaccines. I know it's um, exciting because it just means that uh, soon you'll have your, your freedom, David, but Hey, if we have any listeners who have a private plane and would like to pick David up, bring him to the U.S. and get him pricked at a Walgreens or CVS, uh, yes. let's do it. Yes, I will I will happily accept a ticket on the PJ to fly down to wherever it is in the U.S. I can hop in for my second shot. So if you know anybody, yeah, maybe, please. Maybe let you watch any of these uh, hockey uh, finals because uh, uh, I, I, <laughs> I tell you, this, this it is the funniest thing that watching all of these uh, you know, stadiums and arenas be full to the brim and as you mentioned last week you know you're still not able to have dinner in your mom's backyard yeah yeah it's 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 pretty crazy i mean it, so first off I, we couldn't we couldn't not talk about the fact that the leafs are now up 3-1 on the habs um so all is good right now knock on wood in leafs nation the the boys are buzzing um things are looking good to to move on from the second round so hopefully uh we can finally get that monkey off our back. We haven't won a playoff series, I think, since 2004. We haven't actually beaten the Canadians in a playoff series since 1967, which ironically was the year we last won the Stanley Cup. So um, for all of my uh, fellow Toronto Maple Leafs fans out there, um, stay strong. Keep, keep, keep the boys going. There's no fans in the stands, but everybody's watching. Um, but, yeah, it would be nice to go to an NHL game. That would be... I mean, and this is one of the funny things I said to our friends is that if I was Doug Ford um, and if Doug Ford is listening, he should do this. Um, he should basically create a waiver for the Toronto Maple Leafs that allows for them to have uh, to violate the in-person gathering limits for those who can prove their two weeks beyond their second dose. And they should just sell tickets at, um, at, I don't know, a flat rate of 50 bucks and fit as many fully vaccinated people into the stands as possible and then broadcast that to a national audience um, as, a, as a bit of a carrot that says like, hey, if you follow through and you get your vaccine, this is what awaits you. Life as normal, playoff games, concerts, things like that, rather than having empty stands. Um, I think that that would actually probably go a long way to curbing some of the hesitancy that we see. Um, that, or you could always do what Ohio is doing, which is just have a lottery and draw name, draw names for a million dollars every week. Um, which I don't yeah, know. You if saw it, 
in New York, it was $5 million that they're uh, doing there, which is, oddly enough, it's the same amount that uh, Andrew Cuomo got for his book. Um, <laughs> I don't know if that has anything to do with that, but uh, <laughs> yeah, you're definitely right. It has a lot to do with that, that symbolism, and yeah. uh, if, if people are able to see that. I mean, look, I've been in, in North Carolina like about a month now. I've been able to go to concerts, go to the restaurant, uh, hang out, go to places, no mask, nothing. It's, uh, it's, it's definitely freedom. And, uh, hey, if those uh, Maple Leafs win, which uh, we'll see what happens, David, I'm sure you'll be celebrating. Uh, oh, yeah. Perhaps you'll even try to get some special adult beverages. And uh, that leads us to this uh, article that you just had published this week in the Financial Post. I'll just read the headline here. Always great when they actually include your name in the headline because that yes. makes it very personal. David Clement Ending liquor monopoly in Ontario would be win, win, win. Rethinking the LCBO could save taxpayers a tremendous amount of money. Now, David, we've talked about this before, the arguments for dismantling many of the alcohol and liquor monopolies across North America, uh, either here in my uh, home state of North Carolina or up there in Canada and various provinces. Uh, but you're bringing up not just these arguments, but now new numbers uh, that actually show the cost savings that would happen if the province of Ontario were to abandon uh, the LCBO's monopoly status. Yeah, so basically what I did is I went through the financial statements, super nerdy stuff, um, but the financial statements of a private retailer in Alberta who operates large inventory retail stores, um, because for those who don't know, in Alberta, they have private sale. And I compared that to the operating budget of... um, of the LCBO and it essentially works out to uh, a private retailer is around $839,000 cheaper per year in terms of operating costs. Um, So that's everything from paying their staff to keeping the lights on and rent and anything else that goes into their, their sales and general kind of administrative budget. And so if you take that savings multiplied by the 666 corporate uh, LCBOs in Ontario, it's $559 million a year in taxpayer saving. And that's a huge amount of money, especially for a province dealing with a bit of a debt crisis. Um, I mean, it's a tremendous amount of savings. And it's something that I think most people in Ontario who consume alcohol um, would gladly um, appreciate if the province were to go that route. So that's that. I mean, that's that, that's the big number. If they were to go all the way, the other option, which I kind of write about in in the article, is if they actually just stop expanding the LCBO, so they stop building new LCBOs, and they let private retailers fill the void. Um, and so based on the projected growth of the LCBO. After about ten years, it's uh, it's over a quarter of a billion dollars, three hundred twenty-three million dollars at the ten-year mark. So still some pre- pretty considerable savings, and that's not even a full privatization. That's just stopping the LCBO from expanding. That is amazing, and I think the, these numbers really put it into context. You know how it impacts the individual consumer. You know, and I know that there are always debates, uh, particularly during these virus times about how much money the government should spend on X and Y and unemployment insurance and all these type of things. But if you're talking about freeing up this amount of money, I mean, that's that's huge cost savings for the future. And it really means that we can have more robust 
uh, governmental coffers that can actually respond appropriately uh, when we have various crises and the like. Uh, but this kind of, you know, bloated system and, you know, we're not advancing much in North Carolina. There's there's a bill that has been put forward that would essentially do, you know, we'll say we'll say they cut around the, the edges a bit, you know, allowing people to order online, which obviously is not, not done here in North Carolina, loosening a bit of the rules, yep. but nothing to like you're talking about, which is it's the obvious end goal. And I think, you know, maybe we have to reiterate again why these monopolies are bad, David. It's not just about the price of your Jack Daniels that goes higher. It's about all those opportunity mm-hmm. costs. It's all about just the ability to ha- to restrict the innovation that could come if you just allowed private retailers to take up the sale of these products rather than these monopolies. Well, yeah, and that's the thing is that you can keep the tax level the same. You can keep the wholesale markup the same, which is essentially a tax. And so like right now, I think last year, the LCBO transferred $2.37 billion to the province. Um, if you were to switch this switch to a more efficient operating model, that figure would be closer to $3 billion um, in transfers to the province. And so it's not some scenario where you'd, a- you'd actually like rip away a source of revenue for the government. You'd actually significantly increase it. And with that additional revenue, I mean, you can use some of it to pay down debt. You could use some of it to reduce taxes in other areas, maybe get rid of some of the price floors on alcohol to to create some competition so that consumers can get some price relief. The world is really your oyster when you find substantial savings like that. Um, And so it isn't some, in my opinion, it really is a win-win because you get to offer consumers more consumer choice, better retail outlets. You could have like a specialty wine store that just sells Bordeaux wines or specialty whiskeys or what have you. Um, While at the same time, uh, making sure that taxpayers are getting a good deal and making sure that the government can kind of dig its way out of the, the fiscal hole that COVID has uh, it's created. It's an important principle. You know, this is a, it's a strange debate that we have because I know, David, you've traveled around and many of our listeners have too, and you go to other countries or even provinces or states, and it's totally different. And it's much more open and free. And uh, I, I even went, uh, had to go to the store the other day and picked up a nice bottle of um, a beautiful end of days rum from a Wilmington distillery. Uh, so I was able to buy that. Uh, of course, I can only buy it at the ABC store. I can't go online and purchase it or, uh, you know, have something added to the cart, which is just ridiculous. It shows how far it goes, David, but I would definitely recommend people reading your article in the Financial Post. We'll put it in our show notes, consumerchoiceradio.com. And now we're going to go to a break and we'll be back with Kimberly Josephson. And welcome back to Consumer Choice Radio, broadcasting here on the Big Talker 106.7 FM and Saga 960 AM. We're here once a week, internationally syndicated, bringing you the best stories on consumer topics from around the world. And uh, here we have a repeat guest, a friend of the show, Dr. Kimberly Josephson. Uh, She's the Assistant Professor of Business and the Associate Dean for the Breen Center for Graduate Excellence at Lebanon Valley College. Dr. Josephson, thanks so much for coming on the program. Oh, thank you so much for having me again. And actually a slight change uh, since the last time we spoke, um, I've been promoted to associate professor 
um, and received tenure. So that's a, a big milestone for, for my career. And I, I couldn't be happier. Wow. Tenure. Okay. So she can say anything she wants, David, and uh, no consequences. <laughs> yeah. And also uh, granted tenure, whereas uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones down there at UNC uh, did not get it. That's another topic. Uh, we had we had a couple of articles uh, that we wanted to discuss with you. I know it's been a whirlwind of change, particularly in the political scene. Um, kind of the coronavirus is fading by as we have more vaccinations. And there's more focus on companies, corporations, and their various bills in Washington that aim to uh, regulate or tax or change how certain things are. And you had a great article. You had a, actually two of them on fee.org about corporate social responsibility. We talked about that last time that you were on the program, which our viewers can find by going to consumerchoiceradio.com. And this time you're talking about Warren Buffett's stance on this. Now, he's definitely a big investor, one of the richest men in the world. And you say that he's snubbed social responsibility as a craze. And you say that he's right. Uh, tell us a little bit about that and why you think uh, good old Mr. Buffett has taken the right road. Yeah, so, I mean, and, and maybe to give a little context as to why I have such an interest in this realm and why I'm, I'm writing articles on this is that, um, you know, social responsibility has really dramatically evolved over the years. And when you hear something that sounds good, we just sometimes assume it's good. And in terms of, well, what are the long-term implications? Sometimes it takes a little bit of time to um, see what comes about of that. Uh, and so I have business students, you know, who have a real interest in, you know, uh, yeah, being entrepreneurs, launching their own businesses, um, just being good managers and things like that. And so we do cover um, what's known as EC ESG metrics, um, so economic, social, um, and governance, um, talking about the triple bottom line, people, planet, profit, and things like that. Um, but it, to some extent, has gone to the extreme, too, where now you have organizations that are trying to abide by um, certain stipulations or their own preconceived expectations in regards to the environment and in regards to social issues. Um, and they're kind of entering almost into murky waters because it's not always, uh, you know, you're not always able to measure it or you're not always able to see if it's having a positive impact. And it could even be a misuse of shareholder money. Um, Cause at the end of the day, the shareholders, right? It's their private property. That's their money. That's their investment. And they invested in the business. They didn't invest in these social initiatives. Um, so it can get, you know, a little tricky in that regard. And so, um, but, but we have kind of seen this snowball effect where, you know, industry leaders are taking on this charge and promoting it and, you know, taking CSR very seriously. So CSR is corporate social responsibility, um, but going beyond just kind of philanthropic donations and really be um, taking part in, forms of activism, right? And so I think it was a, 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 a good signal uh, that you had someone of such a status as Warren Buffett to say, you know, let's rethink this, right? And, and this is not the first time he's come, um, he's opened up about his concerns re regarding these metrics. Um, and, and additionally, we could even see these metrics um, if it's something that's imposed uh, by industry leaders um, it creates entry barriers for those that are smaller firms or don't have, um, you know, the profit or the capacity um, to put their proceeds towards these efforts and events and things like that. Now, I, I'm interested to hear your take. So um, we, we've seen a lot of what activists will call greenwashing when it comes to environmental concerns. Are you kind of seeing an emerging trend of maybe woke washing? 
where firms are signaling their commitment to causes without actually doing anything to substantially benefit them. Um, I have no idea. That's kind of why I'm asking, but I'm interested to hear if woke washing is becoming a, a popular uh, trend. Yeah, well, I, I actually, that's kind of a fun term, the idea of woke washing. So um, greenwashing has been reused in different formats um, to kind of convey this uh, somewhat facade of, hey, we're doing good, but really behind the scenes, not so much. Um, I think a lot of organizations sometimes have really great intentions, um, but in terms of the activism um, that they might portray, there might be a disconnect. So I'm a big fan of, you know, decentralizing power within organizations and even within society too. And if you have an organization that let's say they're espousing a certain value or putting big bucks behind a certain movement or something like that, but at the end of the day, the individuals within the organization are not feeling valued or not being, um, you know, not feeling like uh, they're, they're following through on what it is they're saying, um, you know, that, that that's just a bad approach. Um, I really think in terms of this idea of woke washing, like you said, you know, I, I think that's a good approach because a lot of um, organizations, they do come out with their, you know, slogans or their pitches in regards to um, social movements or, uh, yeah, environmental concerns, but then behind the scenes, you know, what they're doing maybe, you know, has a disconnect with that. Um, and when that comes to light, they, they get red flagged for it. Um, and there are a lot of examples where this has happened, actually. Um, so if you were to Google, you know, cause-related marketing campaigns gone wrong, um, there's a slew of these. Um, and so I also, I feel that these organizations are maybe going outside their area of competence, competencies, um, like what they know, what they do well. They went into business to be a business, produce a product, and you can compete in terms of quality and efficiency and cost and value um, in terms of competing on in relation to like a, yeah, CSR initiatives, right? It's there's always going to be another bandwagon to join. There's always going to be a new crisis. There's always going to be something else that um, they could jump on. And also, it almost makes a, kind of a marketing concern too, because if you're saying, "Hey, we're helping this," once it gets better, uh, you can't market that anymore. Um, so you can compete in terms of a product, in terms of an offering, in terms of this kind of you know emotional appeal and psychological, right? It, 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 it creates some inconsistencies, it creates some disconnect, and, and also it can even alienate members of your audience who maybe don't agree with what it is you're doing. Listening to Consumer Choice Radio, we're speaking with Dr. Kimberly Josephson, now tenured uh, associate <laughs> professor over there at the Lebanon Valley College in Anvil, Pennsylvania. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask about, we talked about corporate responsibility, which is very external in terms of what a company does in their own marketing or their own initiatives. I wanted to ask about internally, uh, there has been a sort of a, a trend among some companies where they've actually banned uh, pretty much all social and political discussions at work, uh, just because it doesn't focus on exactly what the company is supposed to do. Uh, one example is Basecamp. Uh, the CEO, uh, Jason Fried, put this blog post out there saying that employees will, quote, no longer be allowed to openly share their societal and political discussions at work. Uh, you saw a little bit of an uproar in, internally. I think it was something like 60 people who eventually left. But it's sort of this trend. There are companies like Coinbase where essentially they have focused all their efforts on their product, their services. They're not going to get into politics. They're not going to try to use the social justice cause. Is that something that internally is causing a rift? Is there more pressure 
uh, from employees to try to adopt a more corporate uh, corporate social responsibility view? Yeah, well, and, and once again, you know, this is something that I'm so glad you brought this example up because I actually use the Basecamp uh, memo in my course as a discussion point. And it is really interesting interesting to see how some students, you know, are like, yeah, I agree with this. This is good. Just let me do my job. You know, I was hired for this. That's what I want to focus on and become an expert in. Um, and I want to, you know, I want to appreciate my colleagues and I want to get along with them, but also I don't have to necessarily agree with them. I don't necessarily have to get into, you know, hot debates with them. We're there to do a job. That's, you know, that's what we signed up for. Whereas then, you know, I have other students who are say, you know, are feeling more like, well, I want to feel part of something important. I want to feel very connected. I, if I want to share my beliefs or opinions, I should be able to do so. Um, what it goes back to, though, is once again that thought of let's decentralize the power, right? So in terms of Basecamp, um, if that company wants to have that type of policy and that type of organizational culture, they have every right to do so. And just as we saw uh, with the employees. They have the right to leave. Uh, it's a voluntary exchange going on in the marketplace. Um, if they, if it's something that really goes against their value system uh, and that they don't want to um, continue working there, they have every right to leave and vote with their feet. Just how we say in, um, you know, consumer trends, you vote with your dollars, right? So same thing within organizations. Um, the founders of an organization. It really is. It's it's theirs to run as they see fit, right? Um, now in terms of whether or not they're going to attract the type of employee base that they want or turn people away or things like that, there could be ramifications, but, you know, they have the right to do so. And, and so on this, uh, do you, I'm, I'm kind of torn on, on the base camp memo because in, in one sense, I really understand it, but on the, on the other hand, employees naturally talk about the things that interest them on a daily basis, whether it's, the latest episode of Grey's Anatomy or what the former president tweeted and what ridiculous statement Donald Trump said or what have you. It really is a wide array of, of, of subject areas, but it feels like politics is increasingly becoming um, more important in terms of people's personal identity. I'm not sure if there's data to back that up, but I'm curious if you think that some of this internal strife is just the kind of the boiling point of the political culture today, generally speaking. Like, are we so polarized that it's now uncomfortable in the workplace? And that's why we have things like the base camp memo. Yeah. So, I mean, it is important to acknowledge that most of our lives are spent at work in our career, right? Um, so it is really important for you to find an organization or a position um, where you really uh, like the people you feel connected to that organization. We usually work for companies um, and, and feel fulfilled when we feel connected to the people within it, right? Um, that's a thing, an example I give in class is no matter how much, and I maybe I even shared this with you last time, but it doesn't matter how much you enjoy playing the guitar for a band. If you hate your bandmates, you're gonna you know, leave. That's why you have all these great band breakups over the year, right? You have to have that connection with the employees. Um, I think, it, I think a problem actually does come back to kind of foundational skills, soft skills. Um, and this is something that we really focus on at Lebanon Valley College is this kind of promotion of uh, critical thinking, um, interpersonal skills, um, because you have a generation, right? They're all um, 
digital natives, right? Uh, they know how to respond to, you know, posts and what to, you know, how to frame something beautifully in their Instagram and, and things like that. But in terms of actual engagement and discussion, and also, you know, do like have, having a little bit of a, you know, backbone in terms of, the, yeah, things are going to be um, maybe said that might offend you that, you know, might rub you the wrong way that you might not think about in a certain way or you're exposed to. Um, and, and this is something that I think is a value when you think about a residential college is that, you know, you are going to be exposed to different perspectives, different um yeah, different positions, different people. Um, and I think people, especially now because of, you know, COVID and being in lockdown, uh, it's more important for us to interact and engage with others um, in real time, in real person, not just virtually, uh, but really have rich communication, um, you know, and, and, and kind of, yeah, promote that idea of uh, that it's okay to challenge ideas. It's okay to think think outside the box. Actually, the World Economic Forum says, um, you know, the top communicator, the top skills that are required for the workforce today that we need communication and critical thinking. Right. And so that tells us that there is a lack in that. And so that is the problem um, is that if, if you're not able to communicate, if you're not able to convey your thoughts, and also if you're not able to know when to, uh, yeah, just listen, right? Be an active listener, empathize, things like that, um, and use a level of discernment. Um, that's why we're having problems in the workplace. Uh, we have different ideas and events being thrown at us constantly online, in the media, on the news, right? Um, and, and not sure even in terms of what to trust and what's true. Uh, and so if you don't have those critical thinking skills or the ability to communicate what it is your concerns are, right? That's what's causing issues within the workplace. There we go. Always great insight from Dr. Kimberly Josephson, now tenured professor, Lebanon Valley College. Dr. Josephson, thanks so much for coming on Consumer Choice Radio. Thank you so much for having me. And we're back on Consumer Choice Radio, coming to you on Saga 960 in the Peel region in Ontario, Canada, and the Big Talker 106.7 FM, coming to you from Wilmington, North Carolina. Uh, a great interview, Yael, with a repeat guest, uh, Dr. Kimberly Josephson, getting into the, the concept of woke washing um, when companies kind of dive into uh, or extend their their corporate social responsibility portfolio into um, issues of social justice. Um, always great to hear her take on this. Um, there are not a lot of people who who really take a deep dive into the efficacy of some of these initiatives. And I, I mean, it's super important to bring this up because I mean we're we're just over a year since the passing of George Floyd. Um, we, you and I talked about the officer involved being uh, convicted of, of murder, um, in my opinion, rightfully convicted of murder. Um, lots of companies joined the conversation in terms of social responsibility and social justice. But the real question is, does it have an impact? Does it actually affect anything? So um, always relevant to, to talk about um, what the actual brass tacks of things are beyond how things are just perceived. Yeah, very true. And a lot of this is not really studied academically the way that she's doing it and examining it. And I think that's, that's probably the most helpful. And that's why we have her on. 
Uh, definitely great insight there, and there'll probably be a lot more to come uh, because, unfortunately, there are plenty more examples out there. And it's not just the social justice causes. I mean, if you just look, look, let's be critical a bit of the oil industry. It's much the same when they set up their funds, you know, for some kind of environmental justice thing. It's kind of the same. So you have there, you have it with these tom-tom shoes. When you buy a pair of shoes, they buy a pair of shoes for someone in a poorer country. Uh, it's the same kind of thing. And while many people do derive some kind of meaning from that, you know, that's not what a company is for. They're there to provide a product or a service. Um, you know, maybe you can make the argument about because religion has left the public space, we now have either the political religions and that's something that just many of these companies have to try to morph to. Uh, so I can understand that part. But yeah, this is a, it's not good because, you know, we use this term culture wars, uh, which I, I detest and I, I don't like. And I'm usually not a participant in that. Even Maybe you, you would disagree with me, David. But this kind of stuff is just very divisive when it doesn't need to be uh, divisive. I think we'll just have to take the Michael Jordan line that Republicans buy sneakers, too, if you like that. Yeah, I do. I remember, I mean, he got a lot of flack for that back in the day. Um, and also, Michael Jordan, a uh, a native son of Wilmington, North Carolina. Yeah, yeah, he still gets a lot of flack for that today. Um, different different issues, but it's it's just one of those things where I mean, I'm I'm all if it's in your brand and and the cause is relevant to like your core business, um, that's I to I totally get it it's when you get that kind of mission creep outside of what your core business is, you, I can, I can understand why you'd want to comment on it, but at the same time, it's like, well, cool. You're lending your voice to a cause, but is what you're doing actually providing some sort of net benefit? Like we use George Floyd. Are any of these comments or, or campaigns from, from some of these big companies actually doing anything to increase police accountability are they doing anything to reform qualified immunity which is the the legal distinction that is why many police officers get off um, in instances of of um, police abuse uh, I, I mean i would be hard pressed to say that it is uh, most of that change is coming from activists on the ground and people who are trying to hold politicians accountable, not, not major companies, but um, it just really is, it leaves you scratching your head as to if there is an impact. Yeah, that's, that's very true. And, you know, at the end of the day, it is a lot of virtue signaling. It's saying, hey, we're on your side, you know, keep buying our products, doing whatever. You know, maybe that's effective in the short term, but as we've learned all too often, the pendulum always swings back. And you can be as woke as you want, but you're still a company. You know, you still do things that uh, many people who detest business, who detest entrepreneurship uh, are not going to like. So, you know, you can cover it up as much as you want. But, you know, people are able to be convinced by good ideas and not necessarily the touchy-feely uh, part of this. So very good conversation. I will uh, link more of the articles uh, that Dr. Josephson has put together over on fee.org. I think they're really interesting for a lot of stuff that we're discussing. Uh, looking at uh, some of the, sort of the news wires, David, that have come in, uh, there's a lot of stuff related to uh, what we discussed last week a bit. There's the lab leak hypothesis. Uh, we had the uh, Israel-Palestine stuff, which we're not going to touch <laughs> at all. Um, but, yeah, I think it's it's very interesting to see 
you know, we're kind of going back into the summer, summer months. There's a lot of hope that's being lifted with vaccines. Um, the one dose summer in Canada, I guess, is somewhat good for many people. But, you know, we have to we have to feel good about how things are. Sometimes we're a bit too negative, uh, you know, on many programs and, and in many articles. But there's a lot of stuff to be thankful for, things that are working really well. And I'm, I'm a bit happier uh, than I was last year. At least now we have clarity. We know what's at the under the other end of all of this. And, uh, you know, maybe that means that we can finally get back to talking about the good policies, uh, the bad policies, ways that we can impact change. Uh, there's there's just so much that, unfortunately, has been muddied in the past couple of months. It's made it hard for us to really do our jobs, to be quite honest. You know, I can talk about uh, you know, everything that's happening with the, the broadband plan by the Biden administration all day. But that's just kind of going to get buried when we talk about, you know, all the stuff with COVID this and that and some fights breaking out because of mask rules or some Israeli Hamas thing. It's uh, it's tough. Yeah, it's... um. It, it will be nice to go back to business as usual. Um, and I'm sure everyone listening to this can appreciate that to going back to like talking and caring about other things beyond the pandemic um, and, and the pandemic. Yeah. Well, I have, I have a good example, actually. Yep. Are you ready for this? Let's one? Hear it. So let's talk. Let's talk about Belarus. Oh, yes. Um, yeah. I think this one is, is fairly interesting because many people don't know much about Belarus. Uh, they don't really understand too much about what's going on there what is your kind of understanding can you kind of give a take as to what happened there with a flight and a journalist who was arrested yeah so for those who don't know belarus is kind of commonly described as as europe's last dictatorship um and one of the vocal opponents uh in the press of the uh, president of Belarus was on a flight um, that was supposed to land, it was going from Greece to Lithuania. Um, and as it was descending to go into Lithuania, it entered Belarusian airspace. Um, they were notified by Belarusian air traffic control that there was allegedly a bomb on the plane, um, which there appears to be no evidence of. And so the plane was forced to land in Minsk, which is the capital of Belarus. And this journalist was taken off the plane and arrested. Um, so it appears as though the Belarusians fabricated a bomb scare to get this plane to land in their territory so that they could arrest this journalist. Um, so, I mean, just an incredibly chilling uh, story in terms of they were able to get him without actually being in the country or without actually having any intent on going to the country, um, which is the really scary part. Because I mean, imagine, uh, imagine how that could be misused by um, that precedent could be misused by the communist party in China um, to fake a bomb scare, to reroute a, a flight to land in Hong Kong or Shanghai or Beijing en route to wherever. Um, it's, it's a really troubling precedent. It's a terrible, terrible example of the clamping down on, uh, on press freedom, um, by dictators, especially the, the president of, of Belarus, who has been notoriously bad on this, um, it was good to see that Prime Minister Justin Trudeau did come out very strongly and condemn this. I believe we've 
shut down the embassy, the Belarusian embassy in Canada, or they've opted to leave. I'm not sure which one is which, but um, I, I, I do certainly think that there, someone has to, in air quotes, pay for this, um, whether it's sanctions against the elected officials who are responsible, like Magnitsky-style sanctions or something along those lines. Um, yeah, just a terrible precedent. And it really just erodes the the safety that you're supposed to have traveling abroad. Um, oh, yeah. If, if a government can arbitrarily just essentially hijack a plane. And I, and I guess one thing I should have mentioned is they actually sent a fighter jet up uh, eventually wow. um, in the mid, with, with the plane to, to escort it down. So I don't know what would have happened if the pilot of the plane said no, um, but just really, really bad stuff. Yeah. And, and the, for those who don't know too much about Belarus, it's essentially a client state of Russia. They have various trade agreements with Russia. It's essentially somewhat of an open border as well uh, with the, the Russian Federation. Uh, they share a lot of resources. And Lukashenko, who's been the dictator, I mean, this guy's been a big dictator for like, what, 35 years? I don't know, some incredible amount of time. Uh, I actually did go to Belarus in 2014. One of the strangest trips I've ever, I've ever been to, uh, been on. Uh, it costs a lot of money to go there. The visa itself was like 300 euros. So that's like 500 Canadian dollars or something. It was... Very insane, strange place. I mean, it, there was a good nightlife scene, you know, probably like you had in Prague in the 1960s. But yeah, just a strange place, way too much of an illiberal nation. I mean, these these are the kind of illiberal nations that we should not be supporting. You know, we should not be supporting any of these type of regimes and really trying to figure out ways that we can improve the lives of people there. And, uh, you know, it's much the same uh, when you have John Cena the wrestler and actor oh, uh, who does this oh no. does this uh, interview and he mentions something about Taiwan being a country and then he apologizes in incredibly fluent Mandarin, by the way, uh, apologizes about that. And he's like, I'm so sorry. I know Taiwan is not a country. It's like, man. Yeah. What a, just giving what a in. joke. Just giving in. What a joke. Um, just, I mean, it's very similar to what happened with the NBA. Just to, just like, where did your spine go? I mean, who knew of all people who were going to turn out to be an absolute jellyfish that John Cena would be at the front of that line. From the top rope, uh, the jellyfish, John Cena. <laughs> yeah, like, I mean, I, I mean, he's a professional wrestler, so I don't, like, he, he's, a, he's a performer, and that's nothing against his profession. Um, so he's not particularly well, I say that because he's probably not particularly well versed in the, the geopolitical nuances of, um, of the, the one China policy and Taiwan and the ongoing threat of invasion from Beijing and whatnot. But it really is troubling that essentially when, when push came to shove, you have this high profile actor and performer essentially siding with the narrative of the communist party of China mm. um, at the expense of a people who have a liberal democratically elected government that respects individual freedom and property rights and really is kind of a bastion for those Canadian and American ideals that we want to see flourish around the world. Um, it's just, it's pretty puzzling to see him just kind of bend over backwards and kiss the ring. Yeah. Kowtow, um, I believe is the term. Yeah. Uh, I'll give you an, another example of the flight. And I, I actually did remember this. There, there's a post up by Glenn Greenwald and it was uh, the president of Bolivia, 
Evo Morales when he was flying from Moscow back to Bolivia. Uh, this is in 2013. He gave an interview and said he'd be open to giving the U.S. whistleblower Edward Snowden asylum. Uh, he basically then got on the plane. They flew. He was over <laughs> Austria and uh, then the countries of France and I think it was Spain actually denied entry uh, to the plane. So it would not be allowed to go over the airspace. They didn't have enough fuel to make it. They had to go right back to Vienna. They landed. The authorities searched the plane because they thought Snowden was on board. And essentially, the idea is that the U.S. had mounted some kind of pressure campaign on many of these countries uh, to try to track Snowden down. Now, 2013, who was president at that time? That's right, Mr. Barack Obama. So this is part of the Obama administration's crackdown on Snowden and various other whistleblowers. Uh, but it's something that I guess yeah. uh, the American government was also, you know, participating in. I don't. I don't think it's been like revealed, but definitely it was an advantage to the U.S. Yeah, we've seen this before. It's incredibly troubling, and I, and I hope that we see less of it moving forward. But um, Yael, it's been a great show. Um, fantastic to have you on the mic again. And uh, yeah, we'll we'll have to uh, reconvene next week because we are out of time. And that does it for Consumer Choice Radio. Thank you for joining us for the hour and for all the other past shows and archives. Check out Consumer Choice Radio for much more. Consumer Choice Radio, hosted by Yael Ososki and myself, David Clement, is a syndicated weekly conversation featuring the latest news, interviews, and expert analysis that covers consumer topics from around the world, focusing on innovation, tech, regulatory policy and science tune in every week to learn why consumer choice matters you can find all of our previous episodes interviews and show notes over on consumerchoiceradio.com as well as the podcast version of this show and as always be sure to subscribe and rate us wherever you do listen to your podcasts you can follow us on twitter at consumer c radio myself at y-a-e-l-o-s-s and david at clement liberty and find our interviews on youtube and instagram just looking up consumer choice radio if there is a consumer issue affecting you that you think that we should cover email us directly at hello at consumerchoiceradio.com thank you again for listening
the United States of America is healed and well again. Say it. Hallelujah.